0: and welcome on into Dogs and Autumn, the history of American football. Today we're going to take a look at the history of the Southeastern Conference, or SEC. I'm happy to be here, and of course very happy to have you here as well. The SEC has roots reaching all the way back to the 1890s, and the very beginnings of Southern football. But unlike the Big Ten, the SEC didn't come together at that early stage. As a matter of fact... The SEC didn't form until the 13 founding members agreed to break away from the Southern Conference in 1932 and establish their own league in 1933. Those original members were as follows, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, Georgia Tech, Kentucky, LSU, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Sewanee, Tennessee, Tulane, and Vanderbilt. The prevailing reason for the breakup was surprisingly not that dramatic. The SOCON had simply grown too large, as by the 1930s, it had swollen to encompass the majority of football-playing institutions between Virginia and Texas. Travel was too difficult and too expensive over such a wide geographic area, so it was agreed that the schools south of the Appalachians would form their own entity. Today, the SEC is a virtual money factory, and as we enter a new era of more and more consolidation, it's poised to stand atop the college football landscape as one of the two primary purveyors of major college football, alongside the Big Ten. But that wasn't inevitable. Conferences in college football have always been very powerful, but membership in those conferences has always been a bit elastic. Of the 13 founding schools of the Southeastern Conference, only 10 remain in the league today. Since 1991, those 10 have added four other schools, Arkansas, South Carolina, Texas A&M, and Missouri, with a further two on the way, Oklahoma and Texas. The reasons for changing conference membership have changed over time, but the fact of it has been with us since the very beginning. And in 1933, there was no particular reason to believe the SEC would become what it is today, rather than just another failed athletics conference way down yonder. And trouble began pretty quickly, in fact. From the pinnacle that was that 1899 team we discussed last time, by 1932, Sewanee had dropped off pretty precipitously. A founding member of the SEC they were, But as it happened, Sewanee never actually won a conference game in the league. That's right, not a single one. They won a perfect 0-37. By 1938, they had decided to stop awarding athletic scholarships altogether, and by 1940, they withdrew from the league. They still compete at the non-scholarship Division III level, but as far as major college football is concerned, Sewanee's memory is only faintly preserved in strange places. One such place is a mention in Alabama's Fight Song, alongside Georgia and Georgia Tech, none of whom are regular opponents of the Crimson Tide in the 21st century, but that's how it goes sometimes. Speaking of Georgia Tech, that's perhaps a more significant loss for the culture of SEC football. As one of the premier programs of the first half of the 20th century, Georgia Tech has historic and heated rivalries with something like half the SEC, not just Georgia. In fact, depending on who you ask, an incident in a game against Bear Bryant's Alabama may have been the proximate cause of Georgia Tech deciding to leave the conference. In a game in 1961, an Alabama player laid a particularly vicious, blindside hit on one of Bobby Dodd's Georgia Tech players, which left the young man with several broken bones in his face, a severe concussion, and ended his football playing days forever. Coach Dodd sent a letter to Coach Bryant requesting that the offending player be suspended. Bryant declined. The next year, Tech students threw bottles of whiskey at Bryant, and he allegedly responded by throwing them back. Bryant and Dodd would bury the hatchet on that feud years later, but the damage was done. Alongside Dodd's concern with other SEC schools' recruiting practices, the league's unwillingness to ensure what Dodd considered to be fair play and good sportsmanship saw the rambling wreck from Georgia Tech take a different road in 1963. And after the exit of Tulane in 1966, a move still broadly reviled in New Orleans to this day, the SEC was left with the ten members that most today think of as SEC Classic. Those are Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Kentucky, Georgia, LSU, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, Tennessee, and Vanderbilt. These ten schools would hold together unchanged between 1966 and 1990, undergoing what was likely the most significant transformation in the history of the sport, the end of Jim Crow and segregation. There was no part of college football, indeed no part of American culture, that wasn't deeply impacted by Jim Crow legislation between 1890 and 1970. But of the conferences still in operation today, none was more or more obviously impacted than the SEC. With the exception of Kentucky, all ten of the schools that comprised this SEC classic were located in former Confederate states, which was of course the very heart of Jim Crow. And that meant that either by their own choice or by the choices of the states that funded them, SEC schools frequently declined to play schools from parts of the country that were racially integrated, or attempted to force those schools to bench their black players for the duration of the game. And Northern schools often acquiesced, even when the Southern school was a visitor on their campus. But by 1955, people elsewhere weren't feeling so accommodating. That year had seen the passage of Brown vs. the Board of Education, the arrest of Rosa Parks, and the lynching murder of Emmett Till. On New Year's 1956, Georgia Tech was set to meet Pittsburgh in the Sugar Bowl, but certain elements, including the governor of Georgia, Marvin Griffin, demanded that Pitt bench their fullback, Bobby Greer, or failing that, that Georgia Tech declined to play. Georgia Tech's president threatened to resign over pressure from the governor and those segregationists. Governor Griffin issued a statement that, among all the statements made by Southern governors when it came to integrating their schools, might be the most over the top. It's remembered as, the South stands at Armageddon. I won't bother reading any of it, you can look it up yourself if you like, but for my money you won't find a better example of what hatred does to the human brain. Fortunately, the governor didn't get his way. Tech students protested his interference and turned Georgia Tech's campus briefly into a riot right down the road from the state capitol in Atlanta. So Tech did play Pitt in New Orleans on January 2nd, 1956, and won 7-0. That would be the last integrated Sugar Bowl for the next eight years, thanks to some reactionary legislation on the part of Louisiana Governor Earl Long, but the ball, so to speak, was rolling. The racial barrier for an SEC football team was broken some ten years later when Greg Page and Nate Northington enrolled at Kentucky. But likely the most famous event precipitating full integration in the SEC came under the watch of the man who is certainly the SEC's most famous coach, the aforementioned Bear Bryant. The tale of Alabama's 1970 game against the Trojans of USC and their standout fullback Sam Bam Cunningham. Cunningham didn't come into the game at Legion Field in Birmingham, Alabama a star, but he did leave one. He was, at the time, something of a third wheel in an all-black backfield for the Trojans, but when he walked off Legion Field, having rushed for 135 yards on 12 carries for two touchdowns, he'd taken an enormous first step in what would become a celebrated career, and USC would win the game 42 to 21. It would be a mistake, though not an uncommon one. To claim that Sam and the Trojans running all over the Crimson Tide at home was what convinced the Alabama administration to finally cave, and allow its prized football team to become integrated. That had somewhat more quietly happened already. Rules at the time prevented freshmen from playing varsity football, but Wilbur Jackson sat on the sidelines for the entirety of the game as the first black football player to ever don the crimson and white of Alabama. It did change something. Longtime Grambling coach Eddie Robinson, perhaps the only college football coach whose reputation among his peers eclipsed that of Bryant's, would we'll tell later biographers that Bryant often spoke to him of how much the Tide losing that ball game and in such dramatic fashion paved the way for full integration of Alabama football. Combined with his adaptation of the Whistbone offense, increasing the size of his in-state talent pool by something like 30 percent ushered in a new decade of dominance for Bryant's Crimson Tide, which would transcend the heights reached by the previous decade and solidify Alabama's position atop the SEC dogpile. This gives us a tidy segue into one of the features of conference play that will become more and more apparent as we go through them. It's the fact that every conference is pretty much dominated by either one or a pair of teams that stand head and shoulders above the rest. In the Big Ten, that's Michigan and Ohio State. In the old Big Eight, it was Oklahoma and Nebraska. In the Big 12, which is the successor to the Big Eight, it's Oklahoma and Texas. But in the SEC, there's really only one, and that's Alabama. The crimson tide have often shared the stage with an equal but that equal has always been temporary tennessee has shared the stage more than most but they've had their down years and none perhaps worse than the last two decades though there's certainly hope hope on rocky top as of this recording more recently florida has been the biggest rival to alabama's sec success in terms of raw numbers since the conference split into divisions and began hosting a championship game in 1992 Florida has won seven SEC titles to Alabama's nine. Of the remaining conference members, LSU, Georgia, and Auburn have all had their turn fighting with the tide at the top. But to put it in perspective, the stretch most Alabama fans remember as their worst, that between 2000 and 2006, still featured multiple appearances in the AP Poll Top 10, as well as two 10-win seasons. However, that stretch also featured losing six Iron Bowls in a row to Auburn, three different coaches named Mike, one of whom never even coached a game, and a pretty gnarly punishment from the NCAA that included dozens of vacated wins. It's stupidest punishment by far. That ended, however, when Nick Saban walked through the door. So say what you want, when Alabama stumbles, they don't actually fall far and they do recover well. That Alabama and Tennessee have historically stood atop the SEC is somewhat fitting as they share a long-running and nasty rivalry called the third Saturday in October, regardless of when it's actually played. This matchup is one third of a trio of rivalries around which the whole conference seems to orbit. And while I could spend this time talking more about names like Bear Bryant and Robert Nealon, Pat Dye, Vince Dooley, Steve Spurrier and Nick Saban if I wanted to, those men will all get plenty of time in the sun later on. I think this trio of rivalries is probably the best use of the rest of our time today. In addition to the third Saturday in October between Alabama and Tennessee, there are the Deep South's oldest rivalry, which I mentioned in the last episode, between Auburn and Georgia, and the Iron Bowl between Alabama and Auburn. I say the conference orbits these three games, but that's really more of a side effect of other decisions the SEC made when it built out its new modern structure in 1992. Had that happen? Accidents of history, money, and geography, really. I mean, I'm glad they did it. I think the historic rivalries of this kind are the best exemplars of what makes college football unique in the world of sports, especially compared to the NFL. But it was really about competitive balance. They had a strong desire to keep the conference winnable for its best teams, to keep it fair across its two new divisions. And this entire problem can probably be boiled down to a single question. What on earth do we do with Auburn? Auburn's in a weird spot, and I hope to be able to go into depth on this one day, but it's no more evident than it was when the SEC created its modern but soon-to-be outdated divisions. Prior to the additions of Arkansas and South Carolina in 1992, the SEC was essentially split into two tiers. A group informally called the Big Six, Alabama, Auburn, Florida, Georgia, LSU, and Tennessee, and everyone else it was considered of vital importance that none of the so-called Big Six of the SEC be overly favored or disfavored relative to everyone else. So the divisions needed to have an equal distribution of the six, three on each side. The wrench in the cogs was Auburn. While located in Alabama and therefore situated in the central time zone along with LSU in Alabama, it was only just barely so. A common refrain in Tuscaloosa is to refer to Auburn as the College of West Georgia. Further, all of Auburn's historic rivals except Alabama were located in the Eastern time zone, Georgia and Florida chief among them. But the conference had already made its decision. They wanted a championship game. This was unheard of in major college football at the time, so they were blazing a trail. They'd added Arkansas and South Carolina for no other reason than that the NCAA required 12 teams in order to host such a game, so there was no going back now. Auburn would lose its annual game against Tennessee, and eventually the annual matchup with Florida as well. Those stung, or not, depending on the Auburn fan. But the conference agreed that the historic rivalry, the Deep South's oldest rivalry, had to be preserved. And so Auburn, Georgia continued to the present. The same goes for Alabama and Tennessee, and of course Alabama and Auburn have each other. And there's your holy trinity of SEC rivalries. You'll hear conspiracy theories about it from time to time, But it truly was more of an accident than anything. But if you want to blame it on anyone, blame it on Auburn. And that's our show. Next time, we're headed to Texas to see how the sport moved west. We'll also do a couple of supplemental episodes comparing American football with its cousin soccer and catching us up on where the rules were around the turn of the 20th century before the forward pass. Leave a rating or review if you're feeling kind. I'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to reach out, you can find me at Dogs in Autumn, one word, on Twitter, or Autumn at gmail.com. Till next time.